Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, the tastiest hour of talk in Music City. Now here's your host, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host. We'll be joined shortly with Caroline Galzen. Our amazing co-host, who's the owner of Nikki's Coal-Fired in the Nations. We are powered by Gordon Food Service. We just love them so much. I'm so happy you're here today. We have got an amazing episode as we continue to bring on politicians who are running for the mayoral race or even in the city council race. Today, we're talking with Jeff Syracuse. Jeff Syracuse is a in the runoff for the Metro Council at large. Again, that election is going to be on September the 14th. It is a Thursday. The reason why this episode is coming out today, which is potentially on Thursday, uh, is because early voting starts tomorrow. starts on Friday. And I wanted to get this episode out so if you were on the fence before you went to the polls on Friday, you could at least hear this episode and maybe have a little bit more of an educated decision because I think this guy could change your mind. He's an amazing, amazing guy. I really enjoyed the conversation. Very intelligent guy. Does not come from a political background. This isn't what he does. I mean, it is what he does, but it's not like a lifelong thing. He really genuinely cares about this community. He wants to do well. He's got some great ideas. Uh, and he's put the work in. Eight years he's been in Donaldson as their city council representative. Now he wants to do it for the whole city. Uh, you're going to hear in this election or in this interview about his job over at BMI, what he does for the music industry. You're going to hear who he's going to back in the mayoral election. You're going to... Uh, Hear us talk about the special session. We're going to talk about all the the big issues that are going on in our city. But most importantly, we talk about him and we ask uh, how it affects us. This is something Caroline and I did where we we wanted to learn more about it. And we kind of said, what can we do to learn more? And we thought, hey, we have this platform. Let's bring people in and let's learn about them. And we get to share it with you. So that's pretty awesome. We really, really are honored to be able to do this. I do want to give a shout out to Jeff's amazing wife, Gina, uh, for helping make this happen. And I want to send out a special thank you to Jeff for taking the time to come and sit down in studio to have this conversation. We had so much fun. Can't wait to bring it to you. On that note, we are going to tell you that this this is going to be a commercial-free episode. I feel like you need to listen to this whole thing, get through it, do it. I don't want interruptions. I don't want breaks. Just get into it, and and hopefully you can uh, make your own decision about who you want to vote for. If you can make a plan to get out and vote, please go do it. It is the most important election that we vote in. This is your local stuff. This actually affects you. So, I do want to say that we're going to talk about a couple sponsors here real quick, and then we're going to jump right into the episode. So we're going to do, I'm going to tell you about a couple people right now, and uh, I implore you, call these people. This is such a crazy time for real estate. I think there's this narrative out there that 7% is an interest rate, and I can't buy a house there. I should have bought a couple years ago, this and this. Guys, because of that, people are, are afraid. 
and they're not out there purchasing houses, which means there are deals on houses. You can get a great deal on a house in Nashville. You didn't think that was a thing, right? Because you haven't had the right realtor. You haven't had the right, you didn't get pre-approved from the right company. And that's what John Ho does. John Ho is with Parks Realty. His Instagram is House Hospitality. He is a restaurant guy that went into real estate and he is amazing. And he wants to help you get a house. If you think you can't buy a house, there are all these myths out there that you have to do this, you have to do that. Give the guy a call. Say, hey, look, I don't know if I can get a house, but I'm really interested. What's this market doing? Can you tell me about it? He's going to help. All you have to do is pick up your phone. His number is 615-483-0315. Like I said, he's on Instagram at House Vitality. And if you're looking to get pre-approved, it is amazing. You need to call Amanda Gardner. She's with Foundation Mortgage, and her number is 865-230-1031. I recently have spoke to her, and it is so easy to get pre-approved. You just There's a couple questions. It is over the telephone. It is super easy. Uh, you send her some, send an email with an attachment and you're, you're done. Get pre-approved. It is that easy. You can find her on Instagram at mortgage Amanda. I implore you. If you're looking to buy a house, you're thinking buy a house, this guy, John Ho, he's going to get you there. Uh, the other guy I want to talk about is Jason Ellis. He's over at super source dish machine chemicals. He's the guy. If you have a restaurant and you're unhappy with the two big companies that typically everybody tends to use because they don't know that there's other options, and the other option in town that everybody is using uh, is SuperSource, the, the people that know what's going on. He doesn't make you sign a contract. Most of these contracts are seven years you have to sign. They can do whatever they want for seven years. Jason has you sign no contracts. He will bring you a brand new dish machine. He'll bring you chemicals every week. He'll educate your staff. He'll teach you how to use the products. He does things the right way. And that's that's why I love SuperSource. That's why everybody that I've turned on a SuperSource so far has said, man, that guy's amazing. We have a display here in the studio. When people come in, they see the SuperSource stuff, and they go, oh, man, Jason Ellis, I love that guy, man. He's the best. And I'm not kidding. That That is a real thing. If you don't have that feeling when you see your dish machine guy, you need to give Jason Ellis a call. His number is 770-337-1143. And the last person we're talking about today is Corson Fire and Security. And, of course, that's Kevin Rose. He's your guy. If you need camera systems, intrusion alarms, fire suppression systems, fire extinguishers, you need somebody to look at it, this is what Corson does. They're amazing, amazing people. And versus calling an 800 number and pushing a button and talking to somebody who doesn't understand your business, you can call Kevin Rose. He's their restaurant specialist, so he knows what you're going through. His number is 615-974-2932. You need a guy. You need a guy out there who you can call for all of your fire and security needs. That's what they do. Corson Fire and Security. All right. Guys, like I said, commercial free. I want to say it's brought to you by those people in Gordon Food Service, my good, good friends over at Gordon Food Service. We love them. Uh, please enjoy Jeff Syracuse. All right, super excited today to welcome in Jeff Syracuse, who is a candidate for Metro Council at Large. Yes. There is a runoff, and you and we have an election September 14th. Is that my right on that? That's right. So is there early voting for that? There is. Starts August 25th, next week, eight days. Okay, so there's eight days of early voting. 
No okay. excuses, guys. Get Amen. to the polls. We Amen. had such a sad turnout. Amen. For the last for the election. Thank you for That's saying right. that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a horrible turnout. And I, I, I made a post the day before the election and I said, look, make a plan to vote. Mm-hmm. Because it's going to rain tomorrow. It's going to be a rainy day. Like, don't be like, oh, it's raining. I don't want to stand. Like, bring an umbrella. Like, make sure you get out there and vote. And apparently, like, the moderates didn't get out to vote. Because they were like, eh. If you were really strongly one way or the other, you came out. But, like, the moderates apparently didn't show up the way that we needed them to show up. You nailed it. That's exactly what happened. You know, I... Let me ask you guys this question, and don't let me get things off the rails starting out, but I really am curious since we're talking about the voter turnout. Mm. I feel like it's, it seems to me most of the young people that I know that are our team members are are not very engaged in the local elections and wanting to vote in, you know, even when it was kind of national election time. It just seems like a, a lot of the younger generation is not as interested and engaged. We kind of are all around the same age. Why Why do we think that is? You know, that's a good question. Why um, are, do we not emphasize that in schools enough about civic duties and responsibilities, if you will? I will say in this election, there was about 10,000 additional uh, young voters that were registered. Okay. So those that were organized, those that were motivated, went and voted. That's, that's what happened. And then you're, you're right. A lot of people stayed home. But there really isn't any excuse, like, like you said, because the opportunities in, uh, of early voting are all over the place. And, it's, and this year, we opened up uh, more early voting sites than, than in previous years. It just seems like we are, you know, every election, I think it's so critical that people turn up and vote. But I feel like especially what's happening locally here in Nashville, yes. nationally over the last few years, it's more important than ever that people turn out and vote. And um, I don't know, I guess it, it just doesn't seem to be on people's radar as much as I would like. Especially local. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, we're nonpartisan. And I like that our elections are on odd years. So we're not mixed into two-party machinated mess right? Yeah. On, on even years because then those national issues would probably – uh, you know, guide those kinds of votes. But we can focus like a laser on our city right here on the odd years. I mean, I would never have run for office if I didn't fully believe in Metro. And and I do. And I and I love our form of government. I love the history. We were one of the very first combination city-county governments in the United States. And because of what happened between combining city and county and figuring out who gets the power, county or city, we became the third largest council in the nation. Behind New York and Chicago, we have the third largest. And so it's very representative government. So, I, I, yes, I wish more people would be engaged and partake in the opportunity to select your leaders. And I think most people think they vote for president or they go out for the big, because they get this national coverage and it's such a big deal. But right. the election that means the most to your everyday life is this election. Absolutely. I mean, the one that affects like your community when something, when you need potholes fixed, when all this, like with the stadium voting, all of this stuff, this is the election that decides the stuff that matters to you on a daily basis. And, and the fraction of people that actually go out and vote is sickening it to was, me. It was pretty much 100,000 people decided the fate of 700,000 yeah. on August 3rd. So, and of course, with the runoff elections, um, you know, it may go down to about 80,000. Hopefully I'm wrong and it's more, but that's generally the, the way it goes. So you're running for Metro Council at large, which is five. There's five at large seats. There's 35 districts and there's right. five. So we have 40 people on our council. Right. Um, you've been, you've been the council representative for district 15 right, and Donaldson. that's Donaldson right. for the last eight years. Yeah. So you can only run two. Correct. And then, so you're not done. So you, but you can switch over to at large. Right. 
what do these five at-large seats mean? So you've been you've had fifteen, sure, and now you're going for at-large. What does it mean to be an at-large? council member. So to compare and contrast here, so a district council member is kind of more of a neighborhood oriented council member that deals with all the planning, zoning, codes issues. When you have a specific neighborhood uh, oriented issue, you call your district council member to figure out, you know, how can I help resolve this situation? As an at-large member, you have the opportunity to kind of look at things from a more broader perspective, governance issues, strategic planning, fiduciary policies, and then any other special committee. For example, um, what, what, Whatever side of this uh, debate of the stadium you are on, uh, to Vice Mayor Schulman's credit, he assigned Councilmember Mendez to be in charge of the committee that will, took a deep dive for many months into the Titans debate. And so that was an opportunity for a at-large council member to really focus on that and ensure we had proper engagement and oversight over this big issue. And then one of the other things that a at-large council member will do when a district council member uh, leaves their seat for, for whatever reason, the vice mayor uh, picks a at-large member to fill that vacancy temporarily until we have a special election. Gotcha. What I, I want to talk real quick because I, I don't think people recognize how much goes into this. Sure. Right. As the, as the layman over here who gets headlines and there's clickbait and stadium deal will ruin the city. Stadium deal is the best thing for the city. Right. As a council member, None of that is what you're looking at. You're, you're, you're looking at all of the details. Tell me some of the things that you look at when you're looking at a stadium. Like, as a responsible council member, what are you looking at when you're deciding on what to vote? This particular deal? Yeah, this it, particular deal. It, it was the most complex deal of my eight years that we dealt with. Absolutely. And ultimately, we were uh, given two choices. Either you invest in the current stadium or you have a new stadium. And so when I look at uh, fiduciary policy and whatnot, I looked at what are, we in, what are we required to invest in the old stadium versus what is the uh, obligation then for Overall a new cost, stadium. Yeah. So obviously we all know that in the 90s we, uh, we wanted the Titans bad, uh, the Oilers, then the Titans. And so we got the team, we got a quickly built stadium, and the deal for the team we uh, gave them a lot and we gave them a lot of obligation of our property tax revenues. And especially between the flood and the recession, we stopped putting money into the current stadium and uh, our obligations were to make sure that that stadium was in first class condition. So uh, to the, I don't fault the Titans. They said, look, you guys have deferred maintenance on this for many years now. You have to you have to start investing in it, or we have another option for you. So it was either a conservative estimate of about seven to $800 million that we were on the hook for to invest in the current stadium, largely what which, which would have come out of our property tax revenue, or the opportunity for a new stadium, which was a our piece was a $760 million revenue bond, does not impact your credit rating, and is, I would call it, performing debt. It is capped... Uh, capitalizing on the success of Nashville so that we are dumping sales tax revenues just on that site in and around that site into that stadium. So if you use it, you help pay for it. And so I know that people said, gosh, we have all these things going on. We need to pave our roads. We need to invest in affordable housing, homelessness issues. Why are we doing this? Well, when you look at the financing of the new stadium, it was State said, you, get, you can get $500 million, but only if a new dome stadium. You can up your 1% uh, hotel motel tax, but only if you have a brand new dome, dome stadium. stadium. And then, of course, the Titans put in about, what, $860 million into it. And then the notion that we were 
uh, subsidizing billionaires is just completely false. We own the stadium. They are our tenants, and that's a long-term revenue-generating facility that we will own. So when I look at either dumping seven to $800 million of property tax revenues into a poorly built open stadium, as opposed to a $760 million revenue bond, completely not impacting our credit rating or touching our property tax revenue, uh, the, the, the decision for me was clear. We need to uh, free up our operating budget to focus on the critical needs of schools, sidewalks, affordable housing, homelessness issues. This was our ability to do that. And then I'll take it one step further. I encourage everybody to go review the East Bank plan. I think that this was one of our planning department's finest hours of designing, as future Mayor O'Connell calls, a Nashville for Nashvillians. And this is absolutely what we are doing with the East Bank plan. This is an opportunity to have inclusive development, to include culture, the potential of a new TPAC, the, the potential of a new Nashville School of the Arts, to recapture all the parking lots around the current stadium that we own, that we can mandate the level of affordability, which we already have about 15 RFPs out there that are 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 coming back to us saying, yes, we want to uh, help you develop this and we can make it happen for you. Um, and then stormwater management system throughout the whole East Bank because it's it's undeveloped. We have an opportunity to build a sustainable, resilient, uh, inclusive uh, area here called the East Bank that is going to benefit the entire county. Transit, uh, taking cars off of I-24, uh, it, it, it was all the pros outweighed the cons with the new stadium, absolutely. So let me ask a question just because I want to make sure that I really understand because I think there are there is a lot of information that people are getting about the stadium that seem to just kind of be the headlines. Sure. But I feel like you went into some more detail that maybe I didn't understand. I think a lot of listeners probably don't understand as well. Is sure. It sounds like we were under, you know, for lack of a better Contract. way to yes. explain it, we were under a contractual obligation mm -hmm. to say we have to do A, B, C, or D. Right. And it wasn't a choice of, hey, we have all of this money that we could use right. to build affordable housing or help with our unhoused population or help with transportation. We legally have to pick one of these choices. That's exactly right. Interesting. I wish people could see the pictures of some of the deferred maintenance of the current stadium. Pretty bad. Um, and at the end of the day, every decision that I make, I, I look at 20 years out. The decision that I make, how is that going to impact the city 20 years from now? And when I think about capital spending plans in the future, if we were to continue with this current stadium, the future capital spending plans, we would have to tell Nashville, sorry, we can't invest in this park upgrade, this school upgrade, these sidewalks, this affordable housing, homelessness issues, because we are contractually obligated to put 10 to $20 million or so this year into a, 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 an older stadium. That's our con contract. So at the end of the day, um, again, the pros vastly outweigh the cons for the taxpayers. I have one more question about the stadium, actually, because I know a lot of criticism around the plan for the new stadium is that it wasn't big enough. We could never be a Super Bowl contender, right. kind of all of these things. Was the plan for the new stadium, was that really our only option for a new stadium? Was there a world in which somebody could have proposed a different architectural plan or a different type of new stadium that could have accommodated, you know, bigger crowds, hosted a Super Bowl, those sort of things? Sure. We actually looked into uh, what would it look like to renovate the existing stadium. Uh, you know, when you look at the amount of dollars that we would have had to, to take 
from property tax revenue to invest in the existing stadium. It just didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. The, the new stadium is actually holds a little bit less people than, than the well, existing Well, sorry, and I, I think that my question was, why is the plan for the new stadium, why does it have to be that specific plan for a new stadium? Why couldn't it have been a new stadium that's Held 100,000 people. It's exactly, exactly. It, it was done in consultation with the NFL, absolutely. This is the standard that they that they want. So um, it, we, it wasn't done. So we could get a Super Bowl. Oh, I, I think it, it's a done deal of us getting a Super Bowl at some point. Absolutely. It was I, think done so. in, I think so, too. In okay. close consultation with the NFL. This is the this is the the new model that that they are using throughout the the, the country. And so we didn't do this on our own in a vacuum. We, we did it absolutely very intentional with f- big events like uh, the Super Bowl, big concerts. Uh, you know, we're Nashville, so it's not just uh, the sports that we're we're looking at. It's like what are the big concerts that we can pull here that we're not getting right now? Well, and events. I yes. mean, you put the Music City Center together, where we're we're bringing in these huge events. Look how successful that was. Yeah, I mean, it's been great as far as I can. I mean, I I don't know. Yeah. I, I look. Listen, I'm I know what I hear in the news, right? And I just it's. I've been around long enough now where I've seen deals like that where there was a lot of pushback on a new uh, convention center. But it was, a, it, it was an opportunity to invest in Nashville when debt was cheap uh, and, and the ability to build it uh, didn't cost as much as it would now. And look at the return that that has brought to the city. I feel like our whole city planning has been around getting a Super Bowl. <laughs> you do? I, no, I think back in, like, and it was 97, 96, yeah. 97, we got the stadium, but... We could get a Super Bowl. Then I was like, we don't have enough hotel rooms. We don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. And it's like ever since then, we've just been building hotels. Sure. And we've just been building all of these things. A, a conference center where when you have a Super Bowl, you need to be able to have a place. The Music City Center. That's right. We have the arena. Then like, oh, now we're getting the showpiece. We hosted the NFL draft. We hosted the NFL NHL All-Star Game. The NFL draft. And we crushed it. And my, I mean, we as did. far as the perception of, I mean, Listen, for small businesses, I don't think we crushed it. Right. But I mean, for those entities and NHL. Brandon saw me make a face. (laughs) Every decision I make is about the residents of Davidson County. I mean, of course it is. And so we don't have a state income tax. We're not going to get one. And uh, I don't think we necessarily want one either. But that means that we do have to focus on good quality tourism, sales tax revenues, because those revenues then are reinvested into our critical areas. Are Uh, they? I think that's the big debate is that. They're not being reinvested into our areas. I mean, they're, people are getting richer and richer, and people can't afford to live in Nashville. It's it's a na- national issue of the haves and the have-nots, and the the, the you know the middle class uh, being squeezed out for sure. I I totally get that. Um, but uh, we have done a good job of riding the ship, turning us around financially, and over the past three, four, you know, five years, even before uh, this term started. We have taken our success and reinvested into our people. Um, it has, we deferred even investing in our people. And it, just like whether it's private or public sector, if you don't pay, recruit, and retain the best and the brightest, then they're going to leave and go elsewhere. So this past uh, budget was focusing on public safety folks. Uh, the past uh, three budgets was focusing on teachers and support staff. Um, we we now have the highest paid teachers in the state. But we, we've got to maintain that for sure if we're going to uh, maintain our ability to have uh, the best and the brightest uh, working in all our departments. Um, but, you know, and, and I can give you other examples of finally taking all the success and reinvesting it in ourselves. 
this rapid growth and development, I mean, it was in the Wall, Wall Street Journal recently that we're the fastest growing city in, in, the, in the nation uh, in, in certain regards. Um, and it's not just Nashville. It's all of Middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, so our ability to uh, reinvest in ourselves uh, has taken some effort, but we are doing it. And I know that people want, I want that road paved now, and I want this done now, and I want these homeless camps cleaned up now. And I get that. These problems uh, didn't necessarily come overnight, and they're not going to be solved overnight, but we are making progress absolutely okay can i, I no, i'm so please. sorry i'm so, we're both both of us are chomping <laughs> at the bit please. why don't go you go ahead. why don't you go because I, I i mine can be any time if this is topical go i was going to switch gears so you go <laughs> sure well what i was going to say is um you know i think that what and we've talked about this so much on this podcast before we've talked about it when we had you know other other candidates for office on the podcast but you know i think something that we see a lot in our industry is you know the musicians, Mm -hmm. the artists, the restaurant workers um, who help to make Nashville the it city are the ones who are being pushed out now. We don't have affordable housing. We don't have transportation. And, you know, our, you know, you mentioned kind of, oh, people in neighborhoods want the homeless camps cleaned up. But, you know, obviously, because it's more than that. It's not cleaned up. It's what, how do we help solve this problem? And, you know, when we don't have affordable housing, it just becomes more and more of a problem. Right. Um, you know, we had some homeless camps in our neighborhood. We had some homeless camps by the restaurant. Right. And those are people in our community that we got to know and interact with, particularly during the pandemic. And one day these people are gone and the camps are gone. But right. it's not right. that they just disappeared no. off the planet, right. you know? Uh, what? How do how do we take the focus off these big headlines yes. like the stadium, like sure. you know hotel rooms, all of this, yeah. and really get to the most vulnerable people in our city and those who are the most in need? Ten years ago, we wouldn't have even been thinking about doing this, but in the matter of months, we're about to open up the first ninety-unit transitional housing development with wraparound services all at the bottom, and uh, that's a game changer. We probably need to go ahead and think about building another one. But the opportunity to tell folks that um, are in the homeless camps, look, you got an opportunity. We we can can house you. The the fix to homelessness is housing. But it's also those wraparound services to make sure mental health support, drug addiction, job uh, support, uh, all all those kinds of things. So it's right behind uh, the courthouse, and it should open up in about six to nine months. We have moved very quickly, as quickly as possible, to transition homelessness out of social services into its own department. That allows us to then apply for federal dollars so that we're not just spending our dollars, but we're able to get some matching grants and and things like that. Um, It's a part of becoming a big city quickly. And certainly, the pandemic exacerbated it big time. Um, so it was difficult to catch up to that, but we are finally doing it. Um, but, but again, it's, uh, why, why did, why was it so difficult to catch up? And is this a, is this a mayor Cooper? I mean, how do you think he did Yeah, as I, a mayor? I mean, he, I think he had the most tumultuous, Oh gosh. Yes. I mean, I, I, people, there's a lot of firebrands thrown at him, of course, but we dude, the, the term you had was pretty insane. Ooh, and yes. what do you, how do you prepare for a global pandemic? How do you prepare <laughs> for civil rights unrest? How do you prepare for school shootings? I mean, like these things all happened under his watch. I think he unfairly gets overly criticized for these things. I'm a, I'm a fan, by the way. Sure. Like, how do you think he did 
as a mayor during that time? Ultimately, when you look at the end of the term, which the last meeting was just this past Tuesday, when you look at look back, you're right. How do you plan for a global pandemic? How do you plan for a bombing downtown? You don't plan for these things. And a lot of this job isn't about uh, planning. It's being able to react well. And ultimately, at the, the end result, he did a good job. We have righted the ship. Financially, we're very secure. The East Bank is a good plan that is going to be inclusive for all, bringing revenues back to us. Um, homelessness is on its way to being uh, addressed in a very robust way. Um, uh, so I, I, I don't fault him at all. Sir, you know, I, it's, uh, <laughs> we are all uh, under extraordinary stress in, in an elected office when you, you sign up for the job to help people, but never felt uh, more helpless, uh, whether it's pandemic, tornado, ripping through, through my district. That dis- was the other thing. I was district. like, there was another big, huge thing, uh, the tornado right before the pandemic. You know, I it's didn't, been a weird time to be in Nashville, huh? But to be in, a, and to be in leadership in Nashville, yes. is, God bless. I mean, just the challenges. I don't think he gets enough credit for what he had to respond to. Whomever the next mayor is, is inheriting a city that um, has righted the ship has corrected our finances, and is on a, a good trajectory. Who do you uh, think is uh, the one to keep the ship going in the right direction? I think Freddie's going to run away with it, for, for sure. Do you think so? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, and if, if this is a, a redux of 2015 in a way, I, you know, it's uh, past his prologue. <laughs> You know, so yes, I, I think that's what's going to happen. So obviously, you're supporting Freddie for mayor. Sure. I, I don't want to speak for Brandon, but I'm certainly supporting. I'm supporting Freddie for mayor. Freddie, why why are you a Freddie supporter and not an Alice Rowley supporter? Well, I've known Freddie longer. Freddie and I were neighborhood leaders before we got elected. That's how I got to know Freddie. And so, um, when he and I both got elected as neighborhood leaders in 2015, um, we became good friends. And I have seen his work in the district over the past uh, eight years. And uh, a very thoughtful guy, extremely intelligent. Um, obviously, downtown is a neighborhood, but it's also the business, the central business district, if, if you will. And so I think overall, he's, he's done a, a great job. And uh, um, I, I think he's going to... I think he to, cares. I think he does care. I think he will be ready on day one. Absolutely. I he, think so, too. He knows all our department heads. He knows uh, the ins and outs and workings of, of government, um, for sure. So, so will we always agree? I mean, I don't think you can put two people in a room that agree on everything. You know, but Did he uh, vote against the stadium? Yes. So he voted against the stadium. Do you? Can you explain to me why he voted against? You're, you're clearly pro-stadium. It needs to happen. Why would he vote against the stadium when it's so clear to you why you should? I'll just generally say... I never heard an alternative from those that were against the proposal. What is the what, what is going to happen if we don't do this deal? And again, we have to tell our neighbors across this county, I'm sorry we didn't do this deal. We're now obligated to start putting millions of dollars into an old stadium. Um, and we don't we don't have the ability to recapture any of the land to build affordable housing around it. So we don't have additional revenues to, to, to build it. Look at the East Bank plan. If you read the East Bank plan, when it first came out, it gave you the option there. Here's how the infrastructure will be laid out if you leave the stadium where it is. Or uh, uh, option B, with the, new, with the new stadium, here's how stormwater management across the East Bank can, can happen. Green space. Here's how the uh, f- 
Fifth Street Boulevard uh, is is going to be, and and the and the road connections and the bridge across the river and whatnot. It was a very thoughtful plan. It wasn't just about the stadium, and obviously the finances of the stadium in of itself are were huge. But when you look at how the stadium was inclusive of the East Bank, uh, that in of itself also it made more sense that the the new stadium was the way to go. So, you know, whether it was politics. Uh, uh, a political decision or anything like that, I, I don't know. But I never heard a an alternative. If we don't do this, then we have to go forward with the current stadium and what happens then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for... I, I said before we started, I said, we're not going to be too, uh, we're not going to no. jump into too many of the issues. We liked it to be light and fun, but we just dove right in Bring and just on. started peppering That's, you. No. Let's, yes. Here's what I love about you. Is that you didn't wake up, your dad's not a politician, is he? No, he was uh, 31 years in the Army. <laughs> so you were an Army kid. You kind of moved all around as a kid. Yeah. You're a fellow Blue Raider, and I love that. Right. But you were you're in the music industry f- since you've graduated. I think I've heard that you also used to manage a Blockbuster video. That was one of my very first jobs. Yes. Know. I was on the seven-year four-school program in college. Uh, you know, like like a lot of young folks, I, I made plenty of mistakes and uh, was finding my way. I, I worked uh, through college, uh, ultimately went to MTSU and got my uh, finished up my music degree, majored in piano. Uh, but it also came with a recording industry minor. It was like the most marketable liberal arts degree you could get. Right? <laughs> so at night, I was studying artist management, copyright right law, all, all these kinds of things. And uh, ultimately, I found a job uh, at my final year of, of MTSU in the mailroom at BMI. They had an opportunity for a mailroom job, and, and I took it. 25 years later, I'm still with BMI. I love the company. I love the mission. I like to go to work every day and say, my job is to pull money in because that songwriter needs to get paid. This, this is Nashville. This is our DNA. And uh, to be part of that is just a, you know, an, an awesome experience. And uh, I love waking up every day doing it. I think everybody knows the BMI building down, you know, close to the Buddy Killen Circle. Yeah. Uh, BMI stands for what? Broadcast Music Incorporated. What does BMI, you just described what they do. Sure. But I don't think people understand what BMI does. Like, sure. so if, if you're at McDonald's yeah. and you hear a Mariah Carey song playing, she needs to get paid for that song being played at McDonald's, right? Right. Well, there's there's a interesting. You mentioned McDonald's. I I, I could go into that in, in a moment. But ultimately, it's the bedrock of the music industry, as NSAI says. It all starts with the song. That song ultimately is intellectual property that results in revenues coming in, revenues going back to those songwriters. So when we say that the music industry here in the city pulls a three billion dollar economic impact to the region, that ultimately starts with the song, and. BMI represents songwriters. If you're a songwriter, you affiliate with us. We find out where music is being played, and based on federal copyright law, we license those places, and we only operate in roughly about 10 cents of the dollar. Everything else goes back to that composer, songwriter, and publisher. Wow. So you're the one who actually gets the musician, the songwriters, paid. The songwriter gets paid. That song then uh, you know, uh, goes to a publisher, the publisher to the label. And uh, so it's interesting. I don't think a lot of people really truly understand how the finances work and the financial impact that the, uh, the city has with royalty revenues. And it's a completely uh, unique uh, element of banking, if you will, right? 
Yeah. So what do you do for them? I manage their radio and TV licensing team. So we are just a small but mighty team of four, and every single radio and television station in the United States has to be licensed by by federal copyright law. So we maintain relations with our broadcasters, and uh, we make sure that to to sell the value of music, which all the broadcasters really get. So we we maintain good relations when stations sell. We make sure that uh, the license transfers to new owners. We collect reports and just make sure that those dollars come in consistently to make sure our songwriters are getting paid. Now, if you win the election to be one of the five Metro Council members at large, would you continue doing your full-time job at BMI, or is this a full-time job? No, it's, whether it's at large or a district or even vice mayor, it's a, it's a part-time job. Okay. Um, so it's been very fascinating. One month after I got my first job at BMI, this thing called Napster came on the scene. Oh, <laughs> wow. And as we all know, it changed the world. The digital revolution started, and it's been fascinating over the past 20 years to see the complexity of federal copyright law and how that impacts the working songwriter and musician in this town. We watched the middle-class songwriter, if you will, evaporate because of all the digital revenues. uh, The revenues were tanking for songwriters until we finally, 20 years later, figured out uh, how to bring some stability to that. It took 20 years, but the Music Modernization Act of 2019 passed Congress unanimously. You tell me what, what's passed Congress unanimously uh, in recent uh, history. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> but it, it was something that was worked out, um, and ultimately the Mechanical Licensing Collective set up shop here, which effectuates the, the, the law, and I think we're finally um, uh, stabilized, if you will. We're not completely there yet, but um, it's been very interesting. And so... Then our songwriters and our musicians took a one-two punch. With the rapid growth and development of this city, then all of a sudden we became a little bit of a victim of our own success. Rapid growth and development means lack of affordability, whether you're, whether you're a teacher, a, a first responder, a nurse, or a songwriter, or a musician. Lack of affordable housing. Look at our local independent music venues, something that I've been uh, just um, very loud about over the past few years. We need a healthy and a balanced ecosystem. Um, we can't just become music industry city. If we don't protect that opportunity for a songwriter or a musician to come to this city to be successful, uh, that's a piece of our DNA, and we, we cannot lose that. And that is a big part of what I want to do that other cities are doing to bring some local policymaking effort to uh, ensuring our long-term sustainability to become a truly great international city of music. How do we do that? Well, you know, th- th- the first part, the equi- the true equity issue isn't a creative issue at all. It's a real estate issue. And look at our local independent music venues that mostly they're in buildings that aren't architecturally worth saving, but they're critical cultural assets. Let's uh, take Station Inn, for example. It's this uh, really cool brick uh, stone building, right? You go in there, it's a whole new world, isn't it? You're surrounded by all these new buildings and whatnot, but you go on Station Inn and just the vibe of Station Inn. It's the, you know, just beer and pizzas and, and, and whatnot. Um, but it's a critical cultural incubator. What other cities are beginning to do, and I like to say that Austin is about four or five years ahead of us, maybe. As Stravinsky says, a good composer doesn't borrow, he steals. So there's certain things that they are doing that we need to replicate here in Nashville. We can't take ourselves for granted anymore. Um, in a nutshell, it's a cultural land trust. It's a private-public partnership that says, okay, I get that you've owned a building for three, four generations, and and you have the right to sell and and get and bring generational wealth to your family. Sure, no problem. But instead of selling to that hotel or condo developer, how about you sell to this trust, and we will make sure that this critical cultural asset stays for this city. 
these are the places where our songwriters and our musicians hone their craft, build their careers, and ultimately get to the point where they can play in all the Live Nation venues or whatnot. But we can't have, I'm not anti-Live Nation or anything like that, but we can't have all our venues just run uh, corporatized uh, venues like that. We have to have our local independent music venues as part of that whole healthy, balanced ecosystem. So it is an example of, of other areas of small businesses what do we do to help small businesses that can't compete with, with the, with the uh, big boys and girls? Well, this kind of cultural land trust is one thing that we can help right the ship and bring some equity to the real estate uh, situation that we're in. It's almost like you could do it with like Arnold's. Abs- you, you're losing Arnold's to who are the land developer that's buying it. Like, well, no, we want to keep this as a cultural land trust if they, you know, if they have the opportunity to sell, to sell to the land trust, then you can continue to operate Arnold's, and they still get to have that generational wealth that's, you know, that it, they wanted. And we don't lose. I still think that with these locally owned and operated restaurants like that, I mean, I think Arnold's was such thing. an amazing community opportunity. You're still in this Wonderful this area, family. but you're standing in line there next to construction workers, next to attorneys, next to politicians, next to musicians, and that's where communities blend, and that's where people get to like. That's where you get to know your neighbors, you know, and it's right. gone. Yes. And and I think something that we kind of see increasingly, you know, happening in Nashville's neighborhoods, and I don't know if there's a way to slow or stop it, but is kind of the homogenization yes. of neighborhoods. Right. You know, we used to have, when I moved here almost 12 years ago, we'd have this unique neighborhood, this unique neighborhood. You know, you go to 12 South and there's KDK and, you know, it's got this kind of local flavor. You go to East and there's all these unique independent businesses and now... Even East Side, especially 12 South, you know, these neighborhoods are all starting to look the same. They're all starting to have the corporate businesses. They're all starting to kind of, you know, there's a there's a 7-Eleven Laredo taco in this neighborhood, in this neighborhood, in this neighborhood. And, you know, it's just I I use that as an example, but it's it's kind of starting to lose that local flavor, it feels like. I will take that as an alley-oop and talk about Donaldson. Because I am so proud over the past eight years, of course, you know, um, if, if they say politics, there's, there's a certain luck to it. Um, I was coming in at a time when Nashville Star was rising. We were the it city. And I have been focused like a laser on balanced and inclusive growth. And I think that's what we need more of in the city, not just steamrolled by corporatization and, and whatnot. When you go down Lebanon Pike in our central business district, we don't have the chains. We've got... Homegrown, Fat Bites, McNamara's, uh, Party File, uh, Tenfold, Nectar, uh, a Caliber Coffee. We have all the small businesses there. And we put a plan in place. It was during the Great Recession called the Downtown Donaldson Urban Design Overlay. And it was a perfect time to plant the seeds, till the soil, and wait for the rain to come after the Great Recession. And we had a plan in place. And it, and it worked. And what's happening now is... Balanced growth, whether you've been here for four generations or you just moved here yesterday, there's something for everybody. And I'm, I'm proud of what I've been able to achieve, a brand new library uh, that serves as a civic anchor across the street from a walkable town center and a regional transit hub. This is balanced and inclusive growth. We just need more of it in many town center, centers, if you will, across the county. Uh, ultimately, you put affordable housing next to these transit centers. This is how you ensure uh, lower the cost of living for folks who don't have to be dependent on cars. This is how we grow right. Um, I, I just 
think that we haven't done a good enough job about working the plan, which back in 2014-15 was called Nashville Next. That's what we looked at, said, okay, downtown, mission accomplished, we get it, what's next? It is these small little mini town centers, if you will, across the county where transit-oriented development needs to happen, affordability, meet the intersection between transit and affordable housing. This is what I've been able to do in Donaldson, and I, this is one of the things I want to be able to do as an at-large member because we are off-kilter a little bit where we don't have that opportunity for the small businesses, the, sm- uh, the local restaurants, um, as much as perhaps we used to. Affordability, whether you're living here or trying to start a small business, it's difficult for everybody. The biggest barrier that, that I see to that as a small business owner is that the commercial rents Mm. are so unsustainable for independent businesses, for people who, you know, don't have corporate backing, who are oftentimes using their own money, you know, trying to scramble and raise money to start businesses. And I will say that you guys have an amazing, amazing local business scene in Donaldson. I guess my devil's advocate question to that would be, you have businesses that have been there for a long time. What happens today, a year from now, 18 months from now, when people's leases come up, what kind of rents are we looking at? You know, where, you know, an independent business has a a great spot going, but maybe their lease rate is going to go up $10 a square foot and it becomes unsustainable. That's what I see happening in the nations. If I were to open Nikki's today, if I were to lease Nikki's today, it, it wouldn't work. Yeah, no, for sure. And then this is where I get into, um, I'm passionate about historic preservation. It's not just protecting what was, but it's protecting a culture about what needs to be. The most affordable building, whether you're living here or having a small business here, is the one that is still standing. Because you know that when you knock something down and you rebuild it, well, that developer's got to recoup that cost. And so where are your rents? Well, the rents are, the numbers are what they are. And they have to recoup those rents. We have to do a, a better job of... The technical term is uh, adaptive reuse. Um, We just can't keep knocking everything down. We've got to find those opportunities in those pockets to maintain what we've got, reinvest in those buildings and whatnot to ensure some affordability for small business. So I think that that's one way where we can uh, address it. You know what he sounds like to me? (laughs) He sounds like a mayoral candidate. (laughs) You don't sound like a city council at large. You sound like somebody who, I'm going to get back to what I was saying earlier. Your dad's not a politician. You didn't grow up in politics. No. Yeah, you know what you're taught. Like, like, there's nothing, there's no question that you haven't researched. You're incredibly intelligent. You don't sound necessarily like a politician. <laughs> What's your why? Like, what? why are you do? you have a great career at BMI. You've got a lovely wife who is doing her thing. Like, why are you doing this? You know, I was raised in a very civic-oriented household. Um, my dad started the Neighborhood Association where I grew up in Atlanta. Right. And so, I, you know, I did the same thing for my neighborhood. It maybe it's just in your DNA about being civically engaged. And then, of course, I raised my son here. And when you talk about oh, the why, I, I can't find a better why as leaving a good example for him about being engaged and uh, and, and whatnot. Um, so, you know, I was a first time home buyer in Donaldson. Um, I had the opportunity of being engaged back then when I went to my very first neighborhood meeting in, in, uh, in Donaldson Hills, I was the, by far the youngest person there. And what's fascinating now is Donaldson hasn't gone through some of those hyper gentrification issues that other parts of town have. It's been slow and steady. Uh, and, and now when you go to neighborhood meetings, you see the young families with the, with the smaller kids integrated with the older folks that are still there. 
Um, and it's, uh, it, it's very healthy to see. Um, so my why, um, I think it's a civic engagement. It's just been in my DNA growing up with both my mom and, and dad, and uh, uh, it's been passed on to me. And it felt like a natural next step. I went from being a, a neighborhood guy to truly enjoying serving and helping leading uh, nonprofits. I was one of the guys who helped start Hip Donaldson. Now you go on Facebook and you type in Hip whatever. There's like a Hip Murfreesboro to Hip Gallatin, Hip Bellevue. And never had we imagined that the name would just be kind of like, you know, uh, broadened to everybody else trying to say, well, I want my own page. But, you know, we're a bona fide nonprofit. And so learning about how to make nonprofits engaged and effective uh, to serve the city we have an extraordinary nonprofit community, historic preservation. I got involved in our local chamber then. And by then, once I got involved in the chamber and they made me president, it felt like a natural next step just to run for office. Nonpartisan, local government. I don't intend on being a career politician, but I love the job. I do love the job. With all this, the headaches and whatnot, you know, I do tell my, my neighbors a lot that, hey, for the, you know, 50 to 60 hours a week that I put into this job, 23 grand a year you pay me, you know, you're getting a pretty good deal. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, yeah. I I was the president of my HOA, my second house that I bought. And it was by kind of default. So I was like, hey, do you want to be on the board? And I was like, not, I mean, I don't, what does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> and then I kind of got guilted and I just go to this meeting. You'll be uh -oh. fine. And it's like, welcome our new board member. I'm like, oh, right. what happened? What did I? And then I ended up enjoying, I, I kind of liked being in the inside. I liked knowing the, the inside financials and everything of sure. the neighborhood because it felt, made me feel more secure about where I lived. Right. That, all of a sudden I had control over how we spent our neighborhood's money. And I, I don't, I didn't like how cold it was. If your yard didn't get mowed, they just dropped a letter off that says mow your yard or else. And I said, I'd rather knock on the door and yes. seek to understand and go, Hey, I noticed your yard is really high. I'm a single mom and I haven't been able to do it. Like, well, why don't I mow it? Can we help find a solution for you? Versus she doesn't need a letter on her door. That's just right. adding more stress to her life. Or it's a, I'm you open the door and marijuana smell comes out. I was like, dude, I'm baked. I don't care. Right. Well, no, I need you to mow your yard. Sure. Let's understand what it is. But like I could directly be in control of that. And then I became the president of the HOA yeah. and we had this big green space and I built a dog park. Fantastic. It's partly because I was pissed off because people were walking their dogs and they were pooping in my front yard and I didn't want that to continue happening. So I built a dog park for them to go. And every time I drove by that dog park and I saw families at the dog park, I went, I just got a smile. Like it made me smile inside because I helped create this place that people now congregate and we're building community. Well done. And it, melt, it meant a lot to me. And we moved away from that house uh, into a, a different house. And I did, there's no HOA where I live now. But sure. for me, it was just, I just wanted to be involved because mm -hmm. I felt like I cared. And it seems like that's for you because when you have a full-time job, Matt, that's kind of why I do this podcast. So nice to hear that about the dog park and especially building community within HOA because you nailed it that a lot of HOAs, we all know it, they feel like they're more about the color of your shutters, the, 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 you know, yeah. the grass and all that. You put a what, shed up? What are you doing? <laughs> what I started was a voluntary neighborhood association. So there's two types. There's an HOA and there's a neighborhood association. A neighborhood association with our older neighborhoods like like I, I live in. Um, 
They don't have HOAs. They weren't built with those back in the 50s. And so total volunteer. It's, it was boots on the ground community organizing, which I had no intent of getting involved in politics. But I did realize once I got involved in politics, it's like I didn't realize what I was doing was setting myself up for being able to bring community together. And so of our 504 homes in Donaldson Hills, we have about 120 people who pay the 35 bucks a year. And through that, we've been able to do entry, entryway, beautification, signage. Uh, we replaced all our street signs in the neighborhood. Tonight, the nice wrought iron street signs. We built pride. We built community. Um, it, it was just a wonderful thing to, to be part of and then to, to leave it for the next folks. It's nice to see when you can walk away from something like that in a leadership role. And, and Everybody picks up the... And they pick it up and they run with it and you say, wow, that's cool. It's, it's happening. You, you set the foundation and they can help take it to new, new levels. What is your end goal? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? You know, it's a fool's game to play in long-term in politics. I mean, I don't, you know, I was eighth uh, in the runoff. So does that mean I'm the underdog? So maybe. So, you know, it's a di- different kind of election, I guess. So if I don't get one of these jobs, I, uh, I'll find a way to just stay engaged. Like, like I said, it's in my DNA. Um, but I hope to stay engaged. Of the eight uh, of us in, in the runoff, there's only one that has served our creative community for 25-plus uh, years now. And uh, I, like I said, I think it's critical to have some local policymaking effort uh, uh, within government. We can't take ourselves for granted anymore. And just having the neighborhood experience, nonprofit experience, supporting the revitalization of a community and, and how that happens inclusive to, to everybody, um, hopefully that, um, that experience resonates with people. But I know that the August 3rd election was fueled from a lot of voters who are not happy. Uh, with, with things, and, and they want change now, and, and I get that, but uh, um, my hope is that, uh, you know, we'll see if I can get in there. But Can, uh, can we talk about gun control? Do, do you want to go there? No, p- yeah, sure. We're about to have the special session, and we had Freddie O'Connell on the show yeah. the day after the Covenant shootings. Oh, yes. that, was a, that was probably the most emotional episode I think we've ever done, sitting down here, and I'm glad he showed up. Because he could have certainly been doing a hundred other things, but he showed up that next morning, and it was incredibly emotional. Yeah. Um, you have children? I do. My son is uh, twenty-two at so University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Nice. Yeah. Um, what, what's your take? What's your take on the whole thing? I mean, I mean, we. Hmm. I don't. I, I can ask a bunch of specifics, but I mean, what, what is your, what is your take? I mean, I just. On gun control in general. So I chaired public health and safety this past year. And there certainly has been a lot going around in that space. As soon as Vice Mayor Schulman uh, appointed me as the chair of public health and safety, one of the first things that we looked, uh, looked at was the opioid settlement dollars and how to make sure that they were spent correctly. Um, and we've worked through violence interruption programs to, 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 to really help communities uh, lift out of some... Um, gang-related activities and, and, and things like that, and build hope, and then covenant happened. Um, like I said earlier, you, you run for this job because you want to help your community. When something like that happens, whether it's the tornado, the pandemic, or, or whatnot, certainly that, you feel like, well, I've got to do something. And you know what? Um, I got the best advice from the Sandy Hook Promise, the Evaldi Foundation for Kids, and because I, I was seeking guidance. What should I be doing? You know what they told me? Don't do anything right now. Make sure that your communities are grieving. Make sure you're taking care of your kids and your families and you're allowing space to grieve and support them and show love. And then be intentional and thoughtful about how you turn your grief into action. 
And that's what I did. I, I, I sat for, uh, for a while. I made sure that, uh, you know, obviously that the resources were, were coming together in extraordinary ways. Obviously, Covenant School is a private school, but our MNPS, uh, they did an extraordinary job in supporting that school, as did so many neighborhoods and nonprofits or whatnot. And so in working with the administration, in working with our nonprofit partners and whatnot, I've put together a three-meeting series to look at school safety and gun violence. And it was an eye-opening learning experience, uh, and I'm very proud of the outcomes of that three-meeting series. The first one was looking specifically at school safety, and we identified a couple of areas that weren't funded yet, ballistic glass and an improved radio system for, for PD. I found the $6.5 million pretty quickly, and we, we got that done. So that was uh, one of the successes out of that. The next one was starting to build the local, regional, and national partnerships uh, with the Valdi Foundation for Kids, with the Sandy Hook Promise, who also turned their grief into meaningful action about how we have good, pragmatic conversations that aren't full of rhetoric uh, when it comes to guns and violence and, and things of that nature. I am now on the National Advisory Board for the Evaldi Foundation for Kids. Um, that's one of the things that came out of that. Um, I learned a lot about how to have conversations with our Republican legislature about uh, how to talk about guns, th that we're not looking at taking guns away, but how can we reduce gun violence? Gun violence, as we know, is the number one killer of kids. Gosh, when, 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 you, when you look at that, when you look at the statistics, shouldn't you take action on that look how many guns loaded guns are stolen out of vehicles oh, it's insane it's insane uh, it was just a few weeks ago where a gun was stolen out of a car at opry mills taken down and uh, a cop was shot uh, you know w we've got to do something about that um Did we pass the measure where you get a felony if they steal uh, a gun out of your car like you're responsible if somebody steals a gun out of your car that was on the ballot right well it was it was a uh, piece of uh, potential legislation from the state but i don't think that passed and so we're beholden to to the state to do anything about guns really um what can we do locally here well in this past year's budget we put in money for gun locks we're going to give away gun locks and all we can do is say people please lock your guns Lock your guns. Please don't leave them loaded in your car, and certainly not your unlocked car. But for crying out loud, you know, we have direct correlation between loaded guns stolen out of cars to crime happening right here in our community. Um, so we're going to do everything we can to try to uh, turn that around. But we have the special session, of course, coming up um, next week, and I think most of us have low expectations. And it's certainly when we saw it with, uh, that the governor uh, put a framework around it, um, I, I don't know that anything of subs substance is really going to come out of that, but we have to keep pushing. And so going back to building those regional and national partnerships, it's about us learning from them about how can we have those more substantive conversations with state legislators about um, getting through the rhetoric, not, not saying that we're, we're trying to take anybody's guns away, but there are pragmatic things that we can do locally right here uh, in Nashville and state, you can help us without infringing on anybody's rights across the entire state. Help us here in Nashville. Help us in our urban areas. There was a shooting down in uh, near Bill Street in Memphis uh, the, the other day. Um, eight people were, were injured. Um, we, we need help 
with the state legislature to understand the differences between urban and rural areas and respect the different needs of both. But here in larger, uh, denser areas, whether it's Memphis or Nashville, Chattanooga, Knoxville, we need different resources and assistance than a rural area does. And I just wish that the state legislature sometime would realize Nashville needs this. We need to be successful. We're 38% of the GDP for the entire state. It's in their best interest to help us with these issues that doesn't impact their rural communities, but give us the resources and ability to make sure that we deal with these issues. Is that what they're going to be talking about in the special session that's coming up? Yeah. And what are we going to be dealing with there? What does this mean? It's very limited. It's going to be about mental health. It's going to be about, um, uh, you know, c- certain... Is it a dog and pony show? Yes. Is that what's going on here? We're just going to... The governor's calling the special session. We're going to go, hey, we need to work on mental health. And Marsha Blackburn's going to say, send grandparents to the schools. And they yes. should be guarding the schools. And then yes. we're going to... I can only assume that the reason why it took so long for he to finalize the special session is because they were probably working behind the scenes to say that the negotiation between legislature and the governor's office to say, what is it that we can actually accomplish? Because if they leave there with nothing accomplished, then everybody's going to be angry. Um, Rightfully so. Rightfully so. I, I hope that they continue to listen to the statistics across this state, that this is not a partisan issue anymore. There's roughly above 80% of people across Tennessee that realize that, gosh, we've gone too far. And we need to do something about this to ensure that no more children are killed. Do you think that we need assault-style weapons? Do you think that individuals should be able to have, like, AR-15-style guns? I don't think so. I I don't necessarily want to take anybody's rights away, but uh, we have this this, uh, rhetoric and uh, just this culture here that doesn't exist on anywhere on the planet of, of having so many guns. For what purpose? Um, this idea of with the Second Amendment that it gives you your, your right to, to have whatever gun you want, fine. Um, but if it was about uh, you know having militias to make sure that the government doesn't overthrow that, that you know that the government isn't in control, that ship has sailed a long time ago. Well, it was written in seventeen seventy six, right? I mean, right, right. They didn't have um, like what kind of car did you drive in seventeen seventy six? Like car no we're we're riding horses right like and now we have lamborghinis and hummers like the world has evolved the world has evolved we have drones now you're not gonna even no matter what gun you have you're not gonna take on the military the world has changed i would like us to focus on first and foremost keeping guns out of the hands of those that um shouldn't have them and i think there is a way to do that you know I wish that the special session would have looked at red flag laws. Uh, all, all that most of us are asking for are pragmatic, incremental steps. Common sense. Common sense. We're not asking anybody to take anybody's guns away, but we're asking for common sense, pragmatic, incremental support. And even if you just allow us the opportunity here locally to do it and not mess with the rest of the state, you know, um, I, I, I wish that that I wish that kind of mutual respect uh, could happen. Agreed. So I want to switch gears just a little bit. And then we'll wrap. Before we let you go, um, because this is Nashville Restaurant Radio. Absolutely. Um, If someone is listening and they are a hospitality worker, Hmm. a restaurant worker, hotel, live music venue, why should they vote for you? Well, I am here for them. Our musicians, our hospitality workers, um, as I've hopefully articulated here uh, over the past hour, I have a 
great un, uh, respect and understanding of the incredible critical value that our hospitality community has to the success of the city. And so whether it's uh, getting rid of smoking in our in our venues or the, the legislation that I passed about large speakers being turned back in. We, we've you just got, saw that. We've got to help and support our hospitality community because they are the reasons why people come here and spend money. And so if we don't support them, then just like any other job, they're going to go somewhere else. But we have got to show the love and support to our hospitality community because this is our economy. It's 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 it, it's who we are. It's been extraordinary to see the growth of Nashville also bring awesome new restaurants and and uh, build our food food community. My uncles have had Syracuse's Pizza Plant for the last forty three years in Buffalo, New York. New York, they've got two locations there. So I kind of grew up with it in, in a way, and and I get that you know all the extraordinary work it takes to to run a, a local restaurant and and whatnot. Um, but also somebody over the past eight years has represented the district that has the greatest concentration of hotels and motels of any district combined because I'm the hospitality gateway to Nashville. Everybody comes into the airport and I've got all the uh, hotels and motels that support uh, the airport. I've got the 30th largest hotel in the world, uh, Opryland, uh, in, in the Opryland part of my district. So I, I've got a unique understanding, I believe, of the value of our hospitality industry to this city. And I feel like that some of the rhetoric here locally, they've gotten a bad rap um, and lumped into the anti-tourism kind of thing. I get it. We need to create a Nashville for Nashvillians, but we need and we need to balance the ship. But we also need to make sure that we support good quality tourism. Do we need more family tourism? Absolutely, we do. Um, do we have a, more of a raucous situation going on downtown? Absolutely, we do. I've started that uh, correction, if you will, by bringing everybody together on the one speaker issue. Um, but we need to protect our musicians. We need to protect our hospitality workers. They. Uh, are so critical to our ultimate success as a city. Jeff, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank for, you for having for me. For carving the time in and getting here. I want to give a big shout out to your beautiful wife, Gina Syracuse. The best. Kind of helping set this thing up. She's just amazing. And, and give her a plug for what... She still has her last name, Gina Cecilia. So, oh, Gina Cecilia. So, so sorry. The, so no, go, go look her up. Um, she's an extraordinary artist. Uh, has 10 projects, working on a Sam Cooke tribute album right now. Um, a pandemic side hustle of creating Gina's Italian Cuisine when live music venues were shut down and uh, touring wasn't happening. She took her extraordinary talents as a cook and started her own business. And it did so well that it's now become a second career. And one of the awesome success stories that I'd like to say is that her success, she was able to self-fund her 10th album that came out last year. And so wow. I know how cool is that? That's amazing. Right? And so now she's been able to merge the two um, and she's part of the arts and business council Periscope program right now. So she's going through uh, some extraordinary training to take the art and make it a successful business. Um, so I couldn't be more proud of her because she's also sacrificed extraordinarily for me over the past year uh, to do this campaign. And uh, I, I couldn't do it without her. She's extraordinary. You've opened my eyes that, um, this isn't just something that you, hey, I want to be a councilman. I'm just going to, I'm going to run for it. Like there's a lot of moving parts in this thing and you've been doing it for eight years. Mm. I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I, I think you'll do a wonderful job. Get out there and early vote. Yes. Um, September, did I say September 15th? What's 14th. 14th. September 14th is election day right. for the runoff. Please get out there and vote. Early voting starts next week, August 25th. 
We finish every episode with a Gordon Food Service final thought. I'm going to take your thought when you said, why do we vote for, I'm going to take that as your final thought. Is that okay? Absolutely. I want to get Gordon's name in there because they're amazing people and we love them on the show. Jeff Syracuse, have a wonderful day. Best of luck, sir. Thank you so much. All right. Awesome. I love that very end part where Caroline says, awesome. I don't know if you caught that, but it's pretty good. Listen to the very end again. So funny. All right. Thank you again, Jeff Syracuse, for joining us on the show. I want to talk about our fantasy football team. We have a a Nashville restaurant radio fantasy football team. We're benefiting the Giving Kitchen. And I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, Tony Galzen, which is Caroline's husband, he is going to be joining me on a new show that's going to come out Friday mornings, and it's going to be a fantasy football show. But it's going to be us talking about our league. None of us are pros, but we like talking about football, and we're going to talk about football with chefs. So that sounds like it's a lot of fun. Um, Here's who's going to be in the league. So far, we have Max Goldberg, Brian Baxter from the Catbird Seat, Shane Nasby from Cletus Burgers, Alyssa Gangeri, who is the partner over at Buttermilk Ranch and Chef, Tony Galzen, Pat Martin, Naima Walker-Fierce, who's the owner of the Germantown Pub, Brian Lee Weaver, Redheaded Stranger, Butcher and Bee, Alex Ballou, who was the winner of Hell's Kitchen Season 21, myself, we are also going to have Hal Holdenbach, who is the chef owner at Lachlan Table, and Tandy Wilson, who is from City House. So we're really excited. This is going to be a really fun league, and we are going to be asking, we're going to be raising money. We're going to be raising money for the Giving Kitchen. We're going to have a link for you guys to go in, and I haven't exactly figured out um, how we're going to do it, but it's probably going to culminate with a dinner at the very end where you get to meet some of these people. It's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. So if you are a company out there, if you're somebody that wants to sponsor this event, the money will be going to the Giving Kitchen. Here's how you do it. You just contact me on Instagram at Brandon underscore NRR. We have different package levels that I'll give you different things. You'll be sponsored on that Friday show. We'll be talking about you. We may even get you on the show to talk football with us. You can help break down our our, our teams, what's going on. So it's a separate thing. Uh, Follow us at Nashville underscore restaurant underscore radio on Instagram, and we will be posting the schedules once a week. We'll be posting all of the matchups so you can see who's playing and what the teams are. We want you to get involved, and uh, this is going to be fun. One of our missions is building community and bringing all of these chefs together to play together, again, is, is towards that mission, and then obviously working with the Giving Kitchen, which helps restaurant workers in crisis really works with that mission. So if you want to be involved, we would love to have you. Please get out there and vote. Early voting starts this Friday. The election is on September the 14th. If you can't early vote, make a plan to get out and vote on the 14th. And uh, we just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support. And thank you for all of your comments about our episode with Brian Lee Weaver, where we talked about tipping. So much fun. Uh, we did a poll on Instagram where we kind of learned that you're either, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have tip fatigue at all. I love tipping people. This is what we do in our industry. And I love that. And some people are like, I think the majority was sometimes I'm annoyed by it. I think that the game, should you tip is a, uh, is a something that 
was real and live, and I think it was really interesting. So thank you for listening, and um, hope you're being safe out there. Love you guys.